There were a lot of exchanges like that. What I, what I remember the most, though, about my dad, uh, and he's, he's the guy over there uh, who's sitting next to the lady who will be taking a million pictures today. Uh, <laughs> my, dad's from, my dad's from Spain, and he has these, like, anecdotes, these little, like, witticisms that I think must make a lot of sense in Spanish, but just, they don't, they don't translate. Like, I remember one time, I was doing something, I was, somehow I was being a little too big for my britches, and I think I wanted to go to the store and buy something, I wanted to ride on my bike there, and I was objectively too young to do this. Like, I was like, maybe six or seven, like, I was just too young to drive my bike all the way to the store and buy whatever it was I wanted to buy and come back. And I remember my dad put his hands on my shoulders and he said, son. And that, you know, when he says son, when he refers to me as son, he means business, something important's coming. So I'm paying attention, I'm, I'm listening, I got my, got my ears open. He says, son, when you are a man, you will eat fried eggs. <laughs> Okay, okay. Like, I'm expecting this, like, Mufasa moment, like, everything the light touches belongs. It's not like that. It says, when you are a man, you will eat fried eggs. And I go, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. And he's like, well, you know, cuando tu eres un hombre, and he's, you know, he says it to me in Spanish. I don't know how to say it in Spanish. <laughs> and uh, he says, when you are a man, you will eat fried eggs. And I'm like, well, what is it? well, like, do kids in Spain, do they not eat fried eggs? Like, is that, like, a cultural thing? He says, no, no, they eat, they eat fried eggs. <laughs> in any language there was another time uh, I was <laughs> I was in the living room and I, I must have passed in between his line of sight and the television and he says hey the meat of the donkey <laughs> what <laughs> did you call me what are you calling me something he says he says, no, the meat of the donkey. And I go, what does that mean? He goes, well, it's, it's a saying where I come from. You know, la carne del burro no es transparente. Did I say that right? Is that good? There you go. It means the meat of the donkey is not transparent. <laughs> so just to clarify, I'm the donkey in that scenario. <laughs> I'm the one that's not transparent. But what I loved about that was that he just said the first part like I was going to fill in the gap. I was just going to be like, what did he say? The meat of the donkey? Oh, he means the meat of the donkey's not transparent. I get where he's coming from. I'm in the way of the TV. That's my dad's story. So, there you go. Uh, so this is my first time preaching. Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've never done it before. I don't, I don't know if I'm good at it. I might not be. I probably am not. Uh, we have a really high level of preaching ability at this church. Uh, between Robbie, Matt, and Phil, uh, it's all great. Uh, so I'm uh, not going to be the best preacher at Oasis. Uh, I'm, as Carol's proven, I'm probably not even going to be the best preacher in my house. Uh, but we're going to get through this together. I, I, I think we're going to, I think this is, <laughs> I, feel your, I feel your nervousness for me. I feel like the expectation, let's go and bring that on down. Let's just, let's just, let's just bring that bar on down. Um, and I, 
I know that uh, I know that it's Father's Day, and I don't want to keep you all too much. Uh, we have lunches to attend, and uh, steaks to buy for fathers. Uh, so we're gonna get through this here. Um, continuing our current series, we're talking about images of the church as they've been given to us in the Bible. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the church as a family, and to do this, we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son, as it has been uh, come to be called. Um, This story has been heralded as structurally one of the greatest examples of storytelling in recorded history. Authors like Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson have called it the greatest short story ever written. Um, And if you're like me, you were raised being taught that this story is about how, no matter how far we stray, or no matter how greatly we sin against God, that God's always willing to bring us back and forgive us. And, And the story is definitely about that. It's definitely not less than that. Uh, But I do think that there is more here uh, for us to unpack. And so we're going to kind of go through this story. Um, I'm going to read it through all the way. And then we're going to break it up into three acts. Because there's three large sections of the story. Each one centers on a different character. And I think each one kind of gives us a a better glimpse of how we can view God and how we can view ourselves. Uh, So bear with me here. I'm going to kind of read through this story. And then we're going to kind of pick it apart. Uh, It starts with Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. Uh, The story itself is in verses 11 through 32, but I want to kind of set the scene for you in what context Jesus was telling this story. Uh, So in verses 1 and 2, he says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then we skip down to verse 11. Here in between those two verses, Jesus tells two stories. One is about the lost sheep. And the other is about a lost coin. Um, And they both kind of deal with similar themes. And then in verse 11, he starts the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, a man has two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in. 
And so his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. As I mentioned, this is a story told in three acts. The first act I'm going to title The Departure. This deals primarily with the youngest son. Um, This story is, I think, misnamed. Um, In your Bible, you probably have a title over it that says the parable of the prodigal son or maybe the parable of the lost son. Um, But I think that's misleading. I don't think that's actually kind of the central character of the story. First of all, there's two sons, and each of them are equally important to the telling of this story. Um, And really, the central character of the story is this father. Jesus used this story to redefine the role of both a father and the role of God as father, how we view God as being a father. Um, This wasn't something that was common before then. People didn't refer to God as father. Uh, Jesus does it almost his entire uh, record of the Gospels, except for one occasion does he address God as anything but father. And in the Old Testament, that's not really seen. People didn't view God that way. Um, Perhaps a, a more common way of viewing God was as a righteous judge, Um, He was this cosmic um, punishment dealer who who, kind of kept balance of things, punished the wicked, rewarded the good, um, and the world made sense to them in that way. And I think people still might view God that way, and I think to those people, the world makes sense when you kind of view things through that limited lens. But the central character of this story is the father, and so I would rename this title if if I had such power to do so. I would retitle this story The Parable of the Father and His Two Sons, or maybe just The Parable of the Father. The title would also have us believe that the great sin committed by the youngest son is his extravagant spending. Prodigal means, um, uh, you know, loose with money. It means um, squanderous or uh, lavish. Um, and this is definitely a part of where he goes wrong, but it's, it's not the chief offense. So if not this... What was the great sin that he committed? Well, let's look at verse 12. He says, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Other translations say, That is coming to me. And what he's referring to, the way that inheritance worked back then, is different from how it works now. Now, typically, sons of wealthy fathers can get an inheritance. They'll get some kind of... um, some kind of, uh, they'll be entrusted with, with, with money or with power or with portions of estates while the father's still living. This wasn't the case back then. A father could say to his sons that this is what will come to you when I die, but that every expectation would have been that the father maintained control of the estates and any wealth that's generated by the estate would come to the father and he would be in charge of it. Um, so for a youngest son to come to a dad and say, give me my portion of the estate. Give me what's coming to me. That what's coming to him means after the father is dead. So for a son to come to a father and say, give me my portion of of my inheritance now, 
It was to say, I wish you were dead. It was to say, I'm not interested in you. I want your stuff. I don't want the relationship that comes with it. I don't want the responsibility that comes with it. And that's inherent in the word that he uses. Uh, Typically, when you're speaking of inheritance, the term, the Greek term would have been kleronomia. And uh, if Robbie were here, he could, he could tell me how I'm butchering that word. I'm, I'm probably not saying it right, but kleronomia. And this connotes management. It connotes responsibility, leadership. When you get an inheritance, it means that you get what the father has, and now you're in charge of it. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the word, let's see, uh, usias, which just means goods and commodities. It's just stuff. It's none of the, none of the attachments to it. So when the son says this to his father, he says, I wish you were dead. I want my stuff, and I want it now. And every expectation of anyone who heard this story would have been for the father to beat the son and drive him out and and disown him. That would have been what the hearers of the story would have been seeing as coming next. But remarkably... The father obliges. He does it. He, he goes along with it. In, verse, uh, in the second half of verse 12, he says, so he divided his wealth between him. The word wealth uh, is good for us because we, we understand it's, it's general enough. Um, but the actual word that's used there is bios, and it's where we get biology. And it's where it's maybe more appropriate to say that the father tore his living apart. Or maybe more appropriate to say that the father tore his life apart. What the son is doing to the father, what his great sin is, he's inflicting upon the father one of the greatest human pains possible, and that is rejected love. He says, I don't want you. I don't want your ways. I just want the stuff. When the father divides the land... It sounds like it may just be, this isn't something that we maybe understand very well. This was an agrarian society. We're not one. Um, I don't know what kind of society we are. We're financial, I guess. I don't know. Uh, But everything, the, the livelihoods, the life of an entire community was fixed upon the land that they lived on, the land that they worked, the land that fed them. Uh... An example I want to give is, uh, does anyone know this, the uh, musical Oklahoma? Anyone know that? There's a line in the main, in the main uh, uh, theme that says, we know we belong to the land and the land we belong to is grand. Does anyone know how that goes? Anyone can sing it? Where's my musical theory? Yeah. <laughs> Oklahoma. Yeah. All right, that's enough from you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's how it was. Uh, and it wasn't, note that that line doesn't say the land belongs to us. We belong to the land. Um, their lives were really, really tied to the well-being of the land there. Uh, Wendell Berry writes a lot about that, but I think Oklahoma uh, brings the point home just as well. <laughs> And this would have affected more than the family. This would have affected the entire community. And so the son departs. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together 
and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. When it says he gathered everything together, it basically means that he sold, he hastily sold the land and converted it into currency. He liquefied his assets. And this would have had devastating effects on the general economy of that, of that town, of that community, and to his father. But, uh, and it says that, very specifically, it says very few days later, which means that he did it really quickly. And I don't know if you know when you sell something really quickly, you generally don't get a great price for it. Uh, so here begins kind of this, this uh, series of, of bad decisions that he makes. <coughs> And this, again, also paints a picture of how the son views the father. For him to leave that place and go to a distant country, it's, a, it's another way of rejecting his father. You know, because usually entire lineages and generations of families would live and die and be buried in the same place. And for him to leave and depart is really just a very complete rejection of the father. Uh, now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Uh, I, like, I like the fact that the famine happens. Uh, in the Old Testament, famine was viewed as kind of judgment, but it's beyond his control. Here again, I, I kind of want to point to the fact that it's not the spending, necessarily, that was his big sin, although definitely, uh, you know, uh, first century Jews would have viewed um, being a poor manager of money as a sin, um, here the famine happens and you can see that the circumstances are completely out of his control. And so he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And here you can almost hear the collective gasps of Jesus' audiences. A fatherless, squanderous Jewish boy serving a Gentile citizen by feeding his pigs, which let's not forget, are extremely unclean. This is rock bottom. This is... The lowest of the low, this is it. And that's the end of Act 1. How are we doing? Good? All right, cool. Oh, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. That's okay. Um, so this part of the story is sad, so I kind of wanted to do something fun. Because uh, that's what I'm good at. Uh, one commentary I read said that some hearers of the story might have expected this to be the end of it. And I think that's hilarious because that's a terrible story. If it was just, if it was just the son, uh, you know, uh, sinned against his father and demanded his inheritance and he moved away and he spent all his money and there was a famine and then, uh, you know, he was poor and homeless and he was starving in the end. <laughs> and I think that it would be a terrible story. It would make an awful story. You know, that's not you'd like the stories that we grew up with. You know, I grew up with stories like Aladdin and Beauty, Beauty and the Beast and, you know, Cinderella, all those stories. They all have happy endings. Invariably, all those stories have, have happy endings, except the original versions don't. Uh, have any of you read uh, the Grimm fairy tales? Yeah? They're very different. <laughs> They're not the same that we grew up with. Uh, and I'm going to give you a few examples, Okay. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. Everyone remember Beauty and the Beast? Happy ending, right? Spoiler alert. By the way, there's spoilers here if you don't, haven't seen these movies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm doing anything more recent than like the last 10 years, so I think, we're, I think it's your fault, I'm saying. If I, <laughs> if I spoil something for you, it's on you, okay? I'm not going to feel bad. Beauty and the Beast, happy ending. True love conquers all. The Beast transforms back into a beautiful prince, and everyone lives happily ever after. 
Not in the original. The original ends with the beast's death and Belle mourning over him. The end. That's it. Cinderella. The two evil stepsisters, after cutting off parts of their feet so that they could fit into the glass slippers, uh, the story after that ends pretty much the same, except at the end, the stepsisters get their eyes gouged out by doves. The end. (laughs) Good night, sweetie. (laughs) These are children's stories. Snow White. Story ends essentially how the, the movie version ends. Except as punishment, the evil queen is forced to dance on hot, coal, hot coals until her heart explodes. I didn't make that up. That literally says the heart explodes. <laughs> Not stops, explodes. The end. Hansel and Gretel murder the witch and then take all of her money. The end. Rapunzel winds up having her hair cut off, living on the street, poor and homeless. And then the prince is pushed out of the tower, lands face first into a thorn bush, losing his eyes. There's a lot of eye stuff in these. I don't know if you notice. The end. And then finally, my favorite, Goldilocks gets eaten by bears because of course. Of course she gets eaten by bears. Of course she does. <laughs> of course that's how that story ends. Act two, homecoming. The son comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You can see him kind of rehearsing this spiel. You know, he's there. He's like, hey, no, that's too strong. Back off, back off. Sir, too formal. Father, yeah, that's good. Father, I'll do that kind of rehearsing this whole spiel. And what he's suggesting is actually pretty customary in the time. If if a debt had been owed to a community, it was very, very normal for a person to go and offer to indenture themselves to that community until the debt is paid. Now, in the meantime, we don't know what's going on with the father, but customarily, when such such a wide rift had been created, when such a a deep chasm of relationship had happened when the son basically emancipates himself from the father, takes a portion of his wealth, and leaves. Every expectation would have been for the father to consider that son dead. And they would actually have a funeral. He would symbolically bury his son. And he would mourn him, and then he'd be expected to move on. That's why at the end of the story... The father says, this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. When he said that, that wasn't him just saying that, saying, well, he was as good as dead. No, he literally had a funeral for him. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. A few translations read, he was filled with compassion. He was overwhelmed by compassion. He ran and embraced him, and kissed him. Uh, embraced him. These, these words are effective for telling the story, but they don't, they don't encapsulate the, the, the severity of this situation, the, the gravity of this story. It says he ran and he embraced him. 
The literal, the literal translation of that word is he fell upon his neck. He collapsed into the arms of his son. When it says he kissed him, that, actually, that word actually means he smothered him with kisses. He, he, he covered him in kisses. These are three things that fathers weren't supposed to do. And certainly God wasn't being viewed as capable of being, of doing. He, he felt overwhelmed by compassion. This, this overflowing show of emotions would have been unacceptable for any distinguished man to do. You're supposed to be in control of your emotions. You're supposed to be strong, stoic. You're not supposed to run. Fathers didn't run. In order to do that, he would have had to have gathered up his robes and exposed his legs and run down the street. This would have been unthinkable, unheard of. And fathers, likewise, shouldn't smother their sons with kisses. All these things that he's describing aren't, they aren't in the purview of fatherhood. Jesus is saying father, he's describing a mother. He's redefining God to the people who heard this story. He's shifting the image from this righteous judge, this distant death dealer, to this loving, compassionate, emotional being. He's redefining, he's he's completely upending it. The fact of the matter is that this particular father never gave up hope for his son. When every cultural and societal expectation would have been for him to write off his child as a lost cause and give him up for dead, he nonetheless kept a weathered eye on the road, waiting, praying, hoping against hope that his son might yet return from the dead. In in studying for this sermon, one of the books I read was a book by Henry Nouwen, Uh, called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's about his story with this painting by Rembrandt. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, one of his last pieces that he he made before he passed away is this this picture of the father and the prodigal son. And in this picture you have the old, presumably blind father, the young broken son. And you have the older son watching over them. To demonstrate this, uh, uh, a lot of people who looked at this painting focus on the hands of the father on the back of the son, and it certainly is a focal point. I want to point out to you, uh, a lot of art critics say that the reason why the two hands look different, one on the right is larger, stronger, it's more muscular, it's gnarled. The right hand is delicate, soft, slender. Art critics believe that Rembrandt was trying to show this dual nature of the father as both father and mother. That he was redefining God as not just being this patriarchal figure, but having all of these attributes that were so commonly associated with womanhood. And Henry Nouwen wrote this of the painting, and I I wanted to share it with you because uh, it, it was particularly moving when I read it. It seems that the hands that touch the back of the returning son are the instruments of the father's inner eye. The near blind father sees far and wide. 
His seeing is an eternal seeing. A seeing that reaches out to all of humanity. It is a seeing that understands the lostness of women and men of all times and places. That knows with immense compassion the suffering of those who have chosen to leave home. That cried oceans of tears as they got caught in anguish and agony. The heart of the father burns with an immense desire to bring his children home. Oh, how much he would have liked to talk to them, to warn them against the many dangers they were facing, and to convince them that a home can be found, everything that they search for elsewhere. How much would he have liked to pull them back with his fatherly authority and hold them close to himself so they would not get hurt? But his love is too great to do any of that. It cannot force, it cannot constrain, push, or pull. It offers the freedom to reject that love or to love in return. It is precisely the immensity of the divine love that is the source of the divine suffering. God, creator of heaven and earth, has chosen to be, first and foremost, a father. The son starts into his spiel. He says, Father, I've sinned against you, heaven, in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off and says to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. The best robe would have been his own robe, by the way. Put a ring on his finger. That ring would have been the signet ring of the family. He's reinstating him back into the family. And put sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear sandals. Sons did. Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. That's the end of Act 2. We're still okay? We're good? No, this is heavy stuff. I like the fun stuff better. So I'm going to tell you a story about when I was... Uh, that happened this week. It's actually, I, I know you're not going to believe this. This happened this week because this whole week I'm thinking about the story. I'm thinking about how the father saw the son from far off, this, this old man. And uh, this week at work, someone recognized me or thought they did uh, from a distance. I'll, I'll get to that. <clears throat> at work, uh, I don't get great cell phone reception anywhere in the building. So, uh, there's this one section, uh, I work at Geico, by the way, it's this, this massive monolithic building out in South Lakeland, and uh, there's this one uh, elevator atrium with a window, and by that window, I can get cell service, so I can check my email, I can check my text messages, and so I'm sitting there, and uh, I'm doing that, and uh, all of a sudden, from down the hallway, I hear a voice that says, hey man, and I look up, and I go, Hi. I'm the only one there. I go, hi. And there's this guy. I don't recognize him. I don't know who that is. He says, you doing all right? I said, yeah, fine. Good. He goes, the job working out well? Ah, That's strange. I've been in the position I'm in now for a couple of years. It's not a new job. Yeah. So I said, yeah, also fine. It's working out great. He goes, okay. Well, it's good to see you, Mark. And, it turns out and I go, oh, I'm not who he, I'm not who he thought I was. I, he thought I was someone else. He thought he was talking to some guy named Mark. And I started thinking about it because things get stuck in my head as they do, and I'm kind of 
you know, thinking about it, and I go, oh, man, this, this guy thought that he was talking to someone he knew well, and I didn't act like that at all. He thinks that guy's a jerk. It's poor Mark. I'm totally ruining this guy Mark's credibility, like his reputation. He's like, hey, there's my friend Mark. Hey, Mark. I'm like, oh, hi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, man, like, I don't, maybe that guy was like his boss or his boss's boss or like a director. I don't know everyone in the company. That could have been someone really important. And he's like, hey, Mark. And I'm like, eh. Maybe he's like, maybe I'll like cost him a promotion or something. I'm thinking about all this stuff. I'm thinking like, man, what did I do to this guy, Mark? I don't know Mark. So that was on Wednesday. On Friday, I'm not kidding. This all happened this week. On Friday, I see this training class walk by because the training classrooms are near where my desk is at. And there's this guy that looks a lot like me. <laughs> I see him. And I mean, he's, he, he's got the beard. He's got the glasses. He's got the short hair. He's got the build, like, short legs, long torso, like a human Welsh corgi, like I am. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth's favorite dog, okay? They're noble. (laughs) Noble dogs. There's nothing wrong with looking like an anthropomorphized Welsh corgi. I see him. So I kind of follow him out to the cafeteria. I go up to him, and I'm like, I got to make this right. I got to say something to him. I got to fix this, you know mistaken identity and I I go up to him and I go hey man he goes hi and I go you doing all right he goes yeah fine job working out okay yeah it's it's going going well all right good to see you Mark walked away I didn't fix anything. All I did was ensure that those two people had that conversation. They just had it vicariously through me. I like to think that I, you know, paid it forward. I, you know, I, I, I at least, if I didn't fix, if I didn't remedy it, I at least kind of subtracted myself from the situation. They had, they genuinely had that interaction. Just, it wasn't with each other. All right, act three. I titled this one, The Fallout. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. There's a party going on. My house, what's going on? The servant said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now this party would have been a huge event. Uh, The fatted calf... Uh, there's a lot of mention of this fatted calf. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It was a big deal. This was something that was reserved for really, really special occasions, weddings and the like. Uh, have you priced beef recently? I mean, it's getting back to that way anyway. I mean, I'm stressing out about buying my dad a steak today. I, <laughs> you're getting sirloin. You're not getting ribeye. <laughs> you can have a ribeye. The son became angry, and he was not willing to go in. This was a big deal. When your father threw a party, you were expected to attend. Standing outside the party refusing to enter would have been considered a huge blow. And his father came out, 
and began pleading with him. This again is in violation of every expectation of anyone who heard this story. For a father, for a son to impudently stand outside of a party and refuse to join, and the father to come out to him. This was, this was, not, this was not customary. The son says, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth and prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Um, in preparing for the sermon, I had a series of conversations with people. Uh, I find that to be a good way, usually when I'm writing a, a paper or doing anything remotely like this. Uh, I'll do that. I'll have a series of hopefully good conversations that'll kind of help shape my thinking and kind of refine what I want to say. And uh, I spoke to one friend who really had a hard time with this older brother, with this story in general, because she identified with the older brother. And that was, I wasn't expecting that. And she said, you know, I, I feel like that. I feel like I've done everything right in my whole life. I've followed the rules. I try not to dishonor my parents. I have never gone, you know, gone wild and sinned greatly. But I identify with this older brother, and that kind of, kind of stuck with me. And I think what the story is trying to say here, and I think what we can look at, is that this, the older son is really tipping his hand in this, in this portion of this story, in this act. He's basically showing that in his heart, in, in, his, in his core, in his motives, he's exactly the same as the younger son. He says, look, again, this is not something that would have been smiled upon. Saying, telling your father, look, you were expected to address your father as father or sir or some kind of honorific. He says, for so many years I've been serving you. And the word there is actually slave. The translation here, he said, for so many years I have been your slave. I've never neglected a command of yours. Yet you've never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. He's demonstrating that his motivation deep down inside is exactly the same as the younger brother's. By dishonoring his father and by saying, look, he's getting all this stuff. And keep in mind, uh, when the father divided his estate, uh, it was customary for the eldest son. If you have two sons, the older son gets a double portion. So in this case, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the stuff and the younger son would have gotten one-third. And so he's saying, he's already spent his part. Anything that the younger son gets at this point is at the expense of the older son. And so he's really playing his hand here. He's saying, again, like the youngest son, who, the eldest son has watched the father grieve and mourn and lament and bury his son and then watch for him on the road. He's seen this. And he just doesn't care. He says, I want your stuff. I don't want you. Now, at this point in the story, the Pharisees, I think, or anyone who knows the Bible well, who knew the Old Testament well, would have kind of seen something coming. They would have seen a pattern here. Um, There's another story in the Old Testament about two sons and a father's blessing. It's Jacob and Esau. And in that story, the younger son robs the older son's his inheritance. He, he steals his birthright. 
And so the Pharisees, uh, which by the way, no one in this room has any confusion about who is who in this story. Uh, the sinners and tax collectors that were there, kind of the, the others, the, you know, the, 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 the plebeians, the, the have-nots, they, uh, they, were, they were the younger brother, and they knew it. And the Pharisees definitely saw themselves as, as the older brother. You know, they, they identify as that, as that slave, as that person who's obeyed all the commandments and, and never disobeyed and never strayed and worked and toiled and, and in the service of the Father. And Jesus, again, defies that expectation. The Father says, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. These two sons represent two paths around God to try and escape relationship with God. The younger son is the path of self-discovery. It's to strike out on your own, reject God, reject His ways, to kind of make your own path. The eldest son is moral conformity. You stay close to God, you follow His commandments, you view Him as the judge, but you don't have that real relationship with Him. You don't have that, that rightness of, 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 of relationship. Now, I don't know by which path you've come to our doors today. And in a moment, we're going to take communion if the servers who are going to serve communion want to go ahead and come forward. Some of you may identify with the younger son. You may have at one point in your life or even at this point in your life rejected God, rejected any kind of association with Him. You may have made mistakes. You may have squandered. To you I say, you have a father, you have a home, you have a family. Some of you may identify with the older brother. Maybe you've lived a life where you've been obedient. You've never really rebelled. But you view God as a judge. And so like the song that we sang earlier says, you're a slave to fear. And to those people in the room that Jesus was telling this story to, he was trying to move them away from being a slave to fear and move them into being a son of God. And finally, there's a third group I want to speak to today. Some of you, all of this imagery about God as a father may be lost on you. You may not have had a great relationship with your natural father. You may have been abused. You may have been neglected. You may not have had a father. You may have had no one. To those of you in here that can identify with that, who've taken that path here, I say, you have a family. You have a home. You have a father that loves you. Let's pray. God, we don't know how to love you sometimes. We don't know how to even think about you. 
Some of us have been raised with the idea that you're a taskmaster and that you're waiting for us to mess up, to get us back in line. Some of us have rejected you. But we want to love you more. We want to love you better. And we want to love each other better.